Hey, Mike, I've been practicing my back squatting. I just want you to give me some feedback on this. Sure. All right. So here's 80 kilos. Here we go. <laughs> Matthew, my fine sensibilities. What's wrong? I'm in shock, Matthew. Do you have any tips? Yes. Wear underpants. Welcome, welcome everybody to another episode of Dr. Matt and Dr. Mike's medical podcast. I am Dr. Mike Todorovic and I'm joined here with my co-host, Dr. Matt Barton. How are you, Matty? I'm pretty sure you haven't done your research today. What do you, we're doing shock, aren't we? Yes, but it, that's the wrong type. Oh, oh, so it's not just being, oh, excuse me, being a, 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 a southern belle with fine sensibilities. No. Okay. Well, I think what is shock? I think we're doing circulatory shock. Okay, should I define it? I think that's a good start. Okay, so shock is basically a reduction in blood pressure leading to a reduction in blood flow to the organs of the body. And this reduction in blood flow means not enough oxygen and nutrients gets to the tissues to feed them and they become ischemic, hypoxic and begin to die and can become necrotic. Right. And so... Shock is basically a, a clinical syndrome, and there's many different types of shock, which we'll go through today, but that's the basic overview. So really, the tissues of the body are just running out of blood. Yeah, that's therefore right. Therefore, slowly dying. Correct. Okay, all right. Um, should we just quickly point out what we'll be following through today? Kind of a, a quick outline. Yeah, structure. how do you want to do it? All right, well, you've done the def- definition. I think we should then put some categories in terms of the causes of shock, so the etiology. Yeah. Then I think we should have a quick look at the physiology. So what's happening in the body on how kind of shock manifests. Then we will go to the stages of shock. And that's kind of a combination of how does your body react to try and keep you alive. But if it doesn't, it just kind of gets worse and worse until death ensues. Yes. And then we'll bring in Dinesh. Yeah, so we'll have our physician in who works in the ED department at Gold Coast University Hospital and he will be able to give us a very good update in regards to the current clinical management of shock. And possibly ways of diagnosing in a, in a manner because we'll see shortly that there's different causes of shock, um, how you might be able to distinguish between those. Or even if that's useful, I'm not sure clinically. That's why we're bringing him in. So how do you want to start? What do you want me to go through? Do you want me to start? Uh, well, we've done the definition. So do you want to now look at what are the main causes of why you get hypoperfusion? Is that the best kind of term? Hypoperfusion. Hypoperfusion. Under of tissue. Perfused. Yeah, I think that's, I think that's the, the way body. to do it. And I, you said this earlier because you could have hypoperfusion of just your brain yeah. or hypoperfusion of just your heart or hypoperfusion or, or just kidneys. But these aren't called uh, shock. It's... One would be called cerebral vascular accident, almost like stroke. One would be a heart attack and one would be acute kidney injury or they used to call it acute renal failure. Yeah, that's right. So shock is obviously systemic. So it has to be multiple, tissues. multiple kind of organs at once. 
Okay. And I think what it rests upon is uh, the blood pressure equation. And so when we look at the blood pressure equation, blood pressure is equal to cardiac output times systemic vascular resistance. So it's a very simple equation. Now, if you know what cardiac output is, it's the amount of blood our heart pumps out per minute Mm -hmm. and systemic vascular resistance, which you sometimes read in textbooks as total peripheral resistance, is simply the resistance that the blood encounters as it's moving through the vessels. Now, because some vessels of the body, specifically arterioles, have a lot of smooth muscle around them or within them, they can change their diameter. And if you think of a hose, if you were to have a more narrow hose, it's harder for the water to get through. Therefore, the resistance goes up. So reduce the diameter of a vessel, resistance goes up and things back up and backlog and that increases pressure. So if you increase systemic vascular resistance, it's a simple equation, you increase blood pressure. The opposite happens when you dilate or relax that blood vessel more blood can get through without resistance. Therefore, the resistance drops, blood pressure drops. So cardiac output is also a combination of two things, which is heart rate and stroke volume. Heart rate is how many times your heart beats per minute and stroke volume is how much blood your heart ejects per contraction. Multiply those two together and you get cardiac output. So the reason why I'm saying this is because blood pressure is equal to heart rate times stroke volume time systemic vascular resistance. If you increase any one of those variables, you will increase blood pressure and vice versa. If you decrease any one of those variables, you're going to decrease blood pressure. Whole point of bringing this up is because if blood pressure has dropped, you get hypoperfusion, right? right? And so hypoperfusion is leading to that reduction in oxygen and nutrients, tissues don't get fed. And this is a primary underpinning cause of shock. Does that make sense? It does. All right. So I think we'll bring that back into play. Yes. Once we've gone through the main causes. Okay. Sure. So the way that the causes are generally demarcated is well, it's done in different ways, right? So depending on the resources that you use, they might do things like um, cardiogenic, neurogenic, yeah, hypervolemic, sometimes obstruction, um, even different ones to that. But but generally, it's broken down into hypervolemic, okay, obstruction, cardiogenic, and distribution issues. Yeah. Okay. Now, what I thought we could do is go through an easier way to try and think of that. So, do you want to explain a diagram that I showed you? Yeah. So, Matt, now, obviously, it's really hard on a podcast to refer to a diagram, but I want you to picture in your mind just a container filled with blood. And that is your circulating blood volume. And so the main point here is blood volume. So I want you to think of A for amount here. So this is the first one. We're going to go through the A, B, C, D of shock, okay? Or at least the cause of shock. Causes, yes. All right, so A being amount, how much blood is floating around through your, or circulating through your body? And that's about five to six litres, depending female, male. That's right. Five for for females, six for for males. So like a a bucket of blood... A, this is number A, sorry, letter A. Jeez. Letter A, and that means amount, okay? Yep. Now we bring in a little tube to the heart, okay? So bring in the tube from the bucket to the heart, okay? Right, so Matt's obviously made it more complete, <laughs> very complex. Oh, do you, oh, you want to go to the causes of A at this point? Okay, all right. Yeah, so okay, sorry. we've just got a bucket, right? Okay. It's filled with blood. And the next one is what we have is obviously vessels leading to the heart. So, 
And it's not just vessels, but it's going to be different structures associated with the heart or leading to the heart or surrounding the heart that can lead to a blockage or some sort of obstruction. So I want you to think of the heart's ability to work as a pump, right? Things can obstruct or block that. And so it could be some problem with the vessel. It could be some problem with the lungs because we know that the lungs basically encase or surround the heart. Uh, And you've also got a little sac surrounding the heart as well. So think of B now for blockage. And it could be a multitude of things, but we will go through that in a second. C is going to be cardiac. And so I want you to refer to the heart. So now we're just thinking about the heart as a pump itself. And obviously, in order for heart to work as a pump, it needs to be able to contract. So muscle is important. The electrical conduction of the heart is important and so forth. When we look at D, which is the last one, this is going to be distribution. So this is going to be the vessels that distribute the blood around the body. And predominantly, we're referring to arterioles here. And the reason why, not just arterioles, because we can also refer to capillaries as well, but arterioles have smooth muscle. So they can dilate and relax. And capillaries have little gaps or pores between them to let fluid out or back in as well. And so I want you to think about D for distribution. How do we distribute? distribute the blood. Now, what you can do, what Matt was alluding to, and I rudely interrupted him, was you can connect all these things up with some tubes. So for example, the bucket of blood, you can have a tube going from the bucket to the heart. And from the heart, you're going to have some tubes that go out to the tissues of the body. And now everything's linked up. A, for the amount of blood. B, for blockages around or associated with the heart. C, the heart itself. D, distribution of the blood around the body, and that leads back to the bucket too, right? So it's all linked up. Where do you want to go from there, Matt? Okay, so we've illustrated the diagram. Now what we can do is go through A, B, C, D, and we can give examples for each. Sure, and we're going to relate it back to the blood pressure equation because that's the most important, in my eyes as a physiologist, that's the most important part. So once we've gone through A, B, C, D and the examples that fit, then we'll bring it across to you to do your blood pressure. Oh, okay. So Matt's telling me exactly where I <laughs> no, fit No, I just don't want to podcast. mix it up halfway through. That's all. Okay. 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 You start. So, so A, that's the bucket. This is the amount. This is the amount of blood in the system. As we said, approximately five liters for the uh, females and six liters ballpark for males. Happy with that? I'm happy. Okay. All right. So in terms of amount, this really refers to hypo volemia so a low volume of blood okay. so you're saying that in for shock to shock, occur in relation to blood volume yep. you have to have a low blood volume correct and this is hypovolemic shock yep that's okay. right okay so is is it just blood we're referring to no there's there's kind of a, a number of ways you can further categorize it and i think the first category is either intravascular or extravascular causes So can I jump in here and just say, it's not just blood. It's not just a bucket of blood. It's a bucket of fluid in the body. So, Well, blood has got a lot of fluid in it. So 55% of your blood is plasma fluid, which is a bit of salty, sugary water, really. Yeah. So let's let's reiterate and say it's a bucket of fluid. Now, I'm a 70-kilogram male, right? A very good-looking 70-kilogram male. That's besides the point. It doesn't need to be brought up, but it's a fact. I mean, why not? Why not? We should... Do a whole episode on it. All right, so 70 kilogram male, what you're going to find is that 60% of my body weight is fluid, which is about 42 liters. Now, of that 42 liters, 28 liters is intracellular within the cells of my Mm -hmm. body. 
and around about 14 litres is extracellular, outside the cells. Now, extracellular can be broken up into between the cells, what we call interstitial, but it can also be intravascular, which is what you're alluding to. Now, if we were to look at those volumes, intravascular, there's about three litres. So that's your 55% of my blood plasma, right? And extravascular is 11 litres. So this is interstitial. This is between the tissues of the body. Great. That sets it up well, actually. So thanks for that. Oh, you're welcome. That's why I'm on the podcast as well. <laughs> All right. So we'll start off with the intravascular causes of shock through the hypovolemic category. Okay. Okay. So this is blood reasons, causes through blood problems or blood leaking. Okay. okay? Blood specifically. Blood specifically or whole blood, should I say. Okay. So you could have um, loss of whole blood externally. So, for instance, trauma, if you were to be stabbed or shot, um, blood's just going to leak out of you. Just leaks straight out, like a tap. So, this is hemorrhage? Yeah, yeah. So, external bleeding. Oh, okay. Okay. Trauma. Gotcha. So, this is... uh, And then also, you could maybe have GIT bleeds here where you are... Let's say you've got um, varices in the esophagus. Ulcerations. Or ulcerations like peptic ulcer and you're bleeding into your gut and then either poo in or vomiting it out. All right, so okay. loss of blood, yep. Externally. Okay, so now we go to internally bleeding. Okay. Oh, so internal hemorrhaging. Right, so right. this is where you might bleed into a space. For instance, you might bleed into your peritoneal cavity. An example would be a triple A, so an abdominal aortic an aneurysm. It busts and now bleeds into your abdominal cavity. But you don't see it come out, it's just within a cavity. So the aorta is a pretty big blood vessel, isn't yeah, it? very and big. Coming straight out of the heart, filled with oxygen and nutrients, that bursts. Obviously, the tissues aren't getting that yeah. oxygen and nutrients. It's your potential, your abdomen yep. is getting that. Yep. Okay. Uh, another, ex- another example you could think about is an ectopic pregnancy. So this is where uh, implantation occurs in, the, say, the fallopian tube instead of the uterus, and it kind of ruptures, and now you have bleeding presumably either into the peritoneum or maybe into the uterus, and then that's concealed, but there's still a bleed. So where would something like postpartum hemorrhage be? Probably the same thing. Okay. Yeah, yeah, same thing. But this is probably coming out of the, the uterus, vagina, externally. So. so all these types of losses of blood, all these causes for losses of blood can lead to hypovolemic shock. Correct. All right. Yeah. Another, and then finally, another one of just um, blood loss, as an example, you could also have retroperitoneal bleeding and this where like goes um, into like behind the peritoneum and just bleeds into a space there as well and and an example could be the uh, the aneurysm in the uh, abdominal aneurysm okay so instead of breaking and bleeding forward into the peritoneum it could bleeding break go backwards because of specific branches or just where it's located sometimes the some blood vessels are located behind the peritoneum so it will bleed behind which i guess would make it more challenging for um, to find where that bleeding is. Okay. All right. So all right. this is all blood. This is all blood. But like you said, the body's not just filled with blood. Correct. So now we can go to plasma losses. So, oh, okay. So this is still intravascular, so it's still the blood products, but it, this is specifically the salty water component. Okay. So and a good example here is burns. So third, oh, degree, yeah, yeah. third degree burns you're losing a lot of the plasma fluid of blood and it's just leaking out of the body because you've lost your integrity of your skin. Okay. 
Another example could be excessive sweating or dehydration. Okay. Uh, another condition could be ascites, where you've got a problem with your liver and it puts too much pressure in your portal vein and then it pushes the plasma out into your peritoneum and you're losing a lot of fluid into the peritoneum. Examples would be liver failure. So like that. is this so could edema be part of this? Yeah, yeah. But th- this is a type of edema, but specifically edema in the peritoneum. Okay. Yep. And then finally, another good example of plasma loss would be pancreatitis. And so this is where the pancreas is kind of digesting Eating itself. Eating itself, yeah. But probably, because as you know, the pancreas releases a lot of enzymes to, to break down food, one of them being for proteins. And if you're spilling that around your abdominal contents or around your organs, you're going to start generating a whole lot of inflammation. Mm. A lot of fluid's going to go into the area and then you're going to lose the plasma from that. Yeah. Okay? So that's all intravascular causes. Now we go to extravascular causes. Okay. Are you right with words today? But still in hypovolemia. Okay. Okay. So two good examples of ways you can lose uh, fluid extravascularly is GIT. So this would be excessive vomiting, excessive diarrhea. Uh, also, you, if you've got bowel obstruction, that could also lead to fluid loss, extravascularly, and this is probably um, decreasing the way the um, the absorption capacity in the gut, but also it's probably going to draw fluid into that area as well, and that's going to result in loss. All right. And then finally, renal causes. So this is where if you had, I don't know, DKA, so ketoacidosis, yep. or maybe just um, unmanaged forms of diabetes where you urinate in it heap. And so this is an osmotic cause where you've got a lot of glucose in your bloodstream. It gets pulled out via the kidneys and it pulls water with it. Yeah. Matt's which just I just which dropping, I just lost water. Yep, yeah, just that's the second time he's actually dropped his glass filled with water. So good job Matt. That fits well with the yeah. um, So Matt spilled his water. There we go. So <laughs> Matt's hypervolemic on the floor. <laughs> So we've gone. We've done, so we, it's have all we, hypervolemia. So, so all those all different things, ways we can lose that fluid. Yeah, that's right. So okay. there are all the most common ways you could develop hypervolemic shock, all which right. is from the bucket. All right. Happy with that? Well, relatively. All right. So let's need, let's now move on. How do you get blood from that bucket to the heart? And this is B for blockage. Okay. Okay. So this is now conditions or causes that result in the way that the blood gets to the heart all around the heart. Yeah. Okay. These are sometimes called obstruction shock. Okay. okay. So I've just got three here. We don't have to really do much more than this. <laughs> Tension pneumothorax. Yeah. So this is really where one, one lung collapses, but collapses in a way where there's so much positive pressure in your um, pleural cavity it starts to force um, that lung to the opposite or the contralateral side. Yeah, so if, if you so if everyone remembers from the respiratory system, you've got your lung tissue and you've got a pressure inside that lung tissue, which is approx on average equal to the atmosphere. But the lung tissue is surrounded by a little cavity called the pleural cavity, which is negative in pressure. Now, the pleural cavity is negative in pressure so the lungs can stick to it, and so that the pleural cavity can also stick to the thoracic cavity. So that when you use the muscles for breathing to expand that thoracic cavity, the lungs move with it because negative pressures suck, right? But if you have some sort of stab wound, which 
pierces or penetrates the pleural cavity, you open up a hole in the pleural cavity and because it's a negative pressure and there's a hole there, air rushes down its pressure gradient from high to low. So air is going to rush into the pleural cavity and it expands. And this expansion of the pleural cavity is what's shifting the lungs and it can shift the trachea and it can shift what's called the mediastinum, which is the space that- Mediastinum. The mediastinum. I say mediastinum. I know. Does that matter? No. Is it the same? (laughs) I guess so. I don't know. Tomato, tomato, potato, patootie. So it pushes the heart to the side. Yeah. Um, So it- by doing that, it can compress the heart so that decreases the ability of the heart to pump out blood, but it can also um, put pressure or compress the big vessels going into the heart like the vena cavas. So, so this is the blockage or blockage. obstruction. Yep, yep. So, so, you're not pneumothorax. Getting, so you're not getting blood from that bucket to the heart because of that ten- tension pneumothorax. Tension yep. pneumothorax. Okay, so that's one. What's the, what's the second okay, one? There's another one called pericardial tamponade, which yep. essentially kind of means pressure on the heart from the outside so your heart is surrounded by a sac a pericardial sac which is quite strong and fibrous yeah to give it some degree of protection yep um it also releases a fluid to the so that when the heart because obviously the heart's going to beat every couple of seconds or every second and when it beats it shifts it moves and so so it doesn't rub or cause friction it's in a sac that releases a lubricating fluid yep um, and so there's no friction, yeah. So there's no friction, but but it's a tough sack. Yes. So it's similar to say your skull, which means if things start to build up inside that sack, um, the area that will get compressed is the softest part. So like in your brain, if you had to bleed, your brain will get compressed. Same thing here. If you get a bleed around your pericardium, it's going to start compressing on the heart tissue, and that means also the heart can't um, feel, but also push out. Or in addition to that, uh, if you have something called pericarditis and inflammation of the pericardial sac or at least some layers of the pericardial sac, we all know that inflammation always leads to increased fluid production, right? It it just happens. And so the fluid can accumulate in the pericardial sac and result in the pericardial uh, uh, tamponade. So this would be if you ruptured your... a coronary artery and it bled, it will just then start accumulating in that space and then eventually your heart can't fill, can't expand and that would be the obstruction. Okay. Finally, another one would be a pulmonary embolism. So this is where you have a big clot that would, let's say, break off from an iliac vein, go all the way up, up your in, inferior vena cava, go through your right atrium, go through your right ventricles because they're big chambers and then go up through the pulmonary trunk and then somewhere along there gets blocked. Therefore, what happens is... Um, there's no blood continuing to the left side of the heart or there's such a high amount of pulmonary tension or blood pressure, it reduces preload. Gotcha. And so the heart's the not feeling filling. The feeling of the heart. Yeah. Okay. So they're, they're the main obstructive causes or blockage causes. Yeah, B for blockage. So we did A for amount. That's the volume of fluid in the body. B for blockage or obstruction. And now we're at the heart itself. So C for cardiac and these is what we call cardiogenic shock causes. Right. Or cardio meaning heart, genic means to generate, right? Well, no, it's Genesis. the origin. The or- so it, it's originating at the heart. So, yep. so shock is originating at the heart. And we know that the heart is a pump. That's what it does. It needs to pump blood. And so cardiogenic shock, anything that stops the heart working as a pump is going to be cardiogenic shock. Yep. Like what? Okay, so I've got three kind of subcategories here. One being a decreased contractility, a w- one being decreased filling, 
and one being arrhythmias. Okay. Okay, so decreased contractility. This means the efficiency of the heart beating. Okay. By far the most common example here would be a myocardial infarction or a heart attack. You stop blood going to the heart muscle itself, it will start dying, therefore the heart is not being efficient anymore, therefore you're not going to get good output or contractility of the heart. Okay, that's pretty straightforward. Another example is the cardiomyopathies, like dilatation, dilated cardiomyopathy, which is a floppy heart. Yeah. And another one is myocarditis, which would be, like you said, inflammation, but in this case it's the inflammation of the myocardium, again, losing its ability to contract as a muscle. Okay. All pretty straightforward? Pretty straightforward. Yeah, it's a muscle. And if it doesn't contract properly, blood doesn't eject properly. If blood doesn't eject properly, blood pressure drops. All right, okay. I got it. Uh, another subcategory is decreased filling. So that just means the heart can't preload. It can't load itself with blood. A good example would be something wrong with the right ventricle, like an MI just in the right ventricle. That means the right ventricle is not pushing blood across to the left. That Therefore, it's not preloading. Therefore, there's nothing coming out of the heart. Okay. Okay, you might have some valve issues as well that could cause this, and then finally arrhythmias. That's pretty straightforward. So a problem the conduction with, issues. Yeah, and so some good examples would be V, VT. So ventricular tachycardia is beating so quick that it's not having any time to fill. So nothing's coming out of it. Yeah, that's an important point because when we go to the blood pressure equation to talk about all these things. Um, which I would have liked to have done while we're talking about it, but that's no, okay. No, I, I, I think that's a bad, bad plan. Uh, okay, okay. No, no problem. But when you think about the ways you can increase blood pressure, because the equation has heart rate times stroke volume times systemic vascular resistance, you'd think that increasing heart rate would increase blood pressure. And it's true up until a point. Because if you increase heart rate, you increase how much blood gets ejected. And that obviously makes sense. But the heart needs to fill between every ejection. And mm-hmm. so if it beats too quickly, it's going to contract before it's f- fully filled with blood and it won't eject enough. So the ejection fraction can reduce the higher the heart rate goes. And if you become tachycardic, then obviously the ejection fraction is so low that your blood pressure drops even further. And that's an important point, at which a lot of students in exams um, neglect because the equation is simple and that's true but up until a point yeah uh, and you can go on the other end of the spectrum here and go into a really slow heartbeat a bradycardia and that would be so slow that you the heart rate's so slow that it, it's not pushing enough blood out yeah and, and you can you know there's always exceptions to the rule and you can think of athletes for example so instead of their heart beating 70 odd times a minute they can beat you know lower than 50 times a minute and so you think oh since the Heart rate's gone down, the blood pressure will go down, but it's just a thicker muscle tissue. And so it's a stronger contraction and therefore blood pressure is maintained. And then finally, you might have some problems with the atria, like atrial fibrillation, where it's just like a bowl of jelly and it's not pushing any blood down into the ventricles. So again, it's a preload issue there. Yep. So that's it for the C, for cardio. So we've done hypovolemic shock, obstructive shock, and cardiogenic shock. A, B, C. So now we're left with D. Distributive. So this is really now taking blood to the organs. Okay, so the three main ones I'll just discuss here is or are septic shock, neurogenic shock, and anaphylactic shock. Yeah. Or, or you've got inflammatory shock. Yes. So um, well, actually that's inflammatory for the septic shock. 
Yeah. So this is basically, there's a problem with the, the vasculature that's bringing blood to the actual organs, which probably becomes dilated and now your blood pressure drops through the, the vascular resistance. And so the organs that you really need to be perfused aren't getting perfused anymore and then that's leading to shock. So um, septic shock is through an infection. So your immune system's reacting so severely to that infection like a bacteria infection. Sometimes bacteria can release exotoxins. Sometimes when bacteria die, this is more gram-negative bacteria, they can release um, a intrinsic factor within their membrane called an endotoxin which can also cause lipopolysaccharide yep which can also result in a reaction in the immune system that could lead to these blood vessels to go super big okay anaphylactic we've spoke about before Uh, i think we spoke about this when we did inflammation but essentially what's happening here is you're releasing so many amount so much amounts of pro-inflammatory chemicals particularly histamine and we know that histamine is really good for causing vasodilation to an inflamed area Um, we saw that let's say in hay fever but if this is body-wide that means all your blood vessels are now super dilated so that means the distribution of blood to areas that you really want it is now poor so let me just reiterate so when we look at this distributive type of shock you can see that there's septic shock and that there's, which is an inflammatory-based shock uh, and anaphylactic shock, which is also an inflammatory-based shock. Now, septic shock, like Matt said, is usually some sort of invading pathogen that our body has a reaction to. And anaphylactic shock is some sort of usually innocuous antigen or protein that our body reacts to as well. So they're both over or hyperexcitability Uh, or a hyperreaction of the immune system. And so as we know, because we've done an immune system podcast and we've done an inflammation podcast, you know that when these things happen, we release those pro-inflammatory chemicals like histamines, like leukotrienes, like prostaglandins. And we know, like Matt said, they dilate blood vessels, they make them wider. So like I said, this is playing around with systemic vascular resistance. Make them wider, blood pressure drops. But they also increase vascular permeability, so fluid leaks out. All right, and so again, blood pressure drops. But there's a third type of. Can I, can I just add something to septic sure. shock? They used to call this blood poisoning. Yep. And some good examples of, of how you could get this is like peritonitis. So you have an inflammation in the peritoneum because that's a, a lot of tissue. You could get rupturing of um, your gastrointestinal tract, and that would sp- spill out essentially poo into your abdominal cavity and that's got a lot of bacteria in it that's going to cause a lot of problems. Mm. Um, Any kind of gangrene tissue and another good example is um, like a UTI that's then got put into the blood. Okay. So these are some of the most common examples of how you might develop septic shock. All right. Sorry, what was your... I was just going to say there's a third type neurogenic of, of this distributive shock and that is neurogenic. So just that like what we had you, cardio... Is that what you had when I was doing the squat? Uh, yes, I had neurogenic shock. So this this is a nervous system issue. So just like cardiogenic, it's originating at so the heart. Th- this is weight. It's originating <laughs> at the nervous system. Don't you love it when Matt decides to interrupt while I'm speaking? So do you think I get that? Don't you I- hate it when he interrupts <laughs> while so do, I'm speaking? When I vomit, do you think I get neurogenic shock very very a very short? Just so everyone knows. I, hence why I collapse. Just so everyone knows, <laughs> when Matt gets gastro. I'm yet to see it, but when Matt gets gastro, for example, and he needs to vomit, 
he, uh, he, he wakes up a few seconds later on the floor. So he has what I, I wouldn't say it's neurogenic shock. No, because it's not. You don't have hypoperfusion. It's neurogenic caused, right? Yes, it's, vas- it's just, vasovagal. It's just not a shock. But if that continued, yes. I would then get shock, right? Correct. So yeah. neurogenic is basically a vasovagal issue. Yeah. So vasovagal simply mean the vagus nerve playing around with the blood vessel diameter. And that's, what hap- that's what's happening with neurogenic shock. It's predominantly individuals with spinal cord injury, usually above T6, mostly in the cervical area. All certain, all certain drugs. All certain drugs. Like anesthesias and stuff. Yeah. Damaging the blood vessels, damaging those sympathetic fibers. So sympathetic fibers like to travel to certain blood vessels of the body, specifically the peripheral blood vessels, and tell them to constrict. And when they constrict, your blood pressure goes up because it's increasing systemic vascular resistance. But if you have a spinal cord injury, like I said, above T6 and it damages sympathetic fibers, you have the parasympathetic fibers which are the flip side of the coin, and they go unchecked. Because as you should probably know, and if you don't, that's okay, but sympathetic, parasympathetic work in tandem. So when one goes up, other goes down, and they balance each other out constantly throughout the day. But if one goes down, the other one goes unchecked, and it boosts up, and that's parasympathetic. Predominantly, it's going to be the vagal nerve, and that just dilates everything. And if it dilates all these blood vessels, blood pressure drops. So it's not an issue with the heart. It's not an issue with the blockage. It's simply the blood, uh, the neurons that are innovating blood vessels. Yeah, cool. All right. That's A, B, C, D, shock. All right. Ho- hopefully that helps. Well, I hope so. Now what I want to do is I want to relate it. You can take it. over. Thank you. Finally. All right, everyone. <laughs> Matt's given up. He's walking away. All right. So I think first thing is we need to relate it back to the blood pressure equation. So cardiac output and systemic vascular resistance. So first thing is, let's go back to A, which is hypovolemia, which is the amount of fluid in the body. So if somebody has hypovolemic shock, the blood volume has gone down. This one's easy. It means cardiac output is down. But specifically, it's stroke volume is going down. So I want you to think about the equation now, right? So blood pressure needs to be maintained. Your body is always in homeostasis. So if something tries to kick you out of whack, your body will respond in order to bring it back into homeostasis. So you've got the blood pressure equation, stroke volume goes down. That means if both heart rate and systemic vascular resistance don't change, blood pressure goes down. But they don't want blood pressure to go down, so they have a response. And that's going to be an increase in heart rate. So if somebody has hypovolemic shock, they may come in tachycardic. Mm. Their heart rate may be through the roof to try and balance out they're dropping blood pressure. Or they may also have a constriction of the blood vessels to try and increase the blood pressure, which often is the peripheral blood vessels shunted away from the skin to the organs that need it. And what we end up having is cold limbs. Yeah, cool, clammy. That's right. So that's hypovolemic. Now, body tries to do it to compensate. These are compensatory mechanisms and often they're not sufficient. Next stop, did you want to add anything? Oh, the only other things I... Could add here. I, you've done a good job. Could or should? Uh, no, it's just additional things that could be tested clinically. So sometimes they may want to test the um, jugular venous pressure, pressure or even the pressure coming into the left atria. And these pressures would be down in hypervolemic shock because, as you said, the blood return into the heart is low. And so, therefore, those pressure values are going to be low as well. Okay. Then we're going to look at obstructive shock. So Matt said the, the tension pneumothorax, we've got the uh, tamponade, and we've also got, what was the last one? 
Oh, a, a PE, polymerembolism. Okay. So what's going to happen here is it's an obstruction and the obstruction can alter, what do you think? If I, we have I think a, this would be almost the same as hypervolemic. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, because so, it's just not getting the the blood returning to the heart. So the way I see it is, it's not specifically heart rate, it's not specifically stroke volume, it's specifically cardiac output issues. So I would say cardiac output itself has dropped, and so one of the main ways that the body's going to respond is increasing systemic vascular resistance, and again, constriction of those blood vessels. So not necessarily an increase in heart rate, but necess- necessarily a constriction oh, it probably, it of probably blood would. I think I think you could almost guarantee that almost in all forms of shock and at the progressive level sorry at the compensatory level you would get an tachycardia even with it, obs- even if it, with obstruction because it's wrapping around the heart yeah well it's still because we'll, we'll get to this but essentially the way that the body's just trying to compensate here is it's picking up a low blood pressure regardless of any of these causes you're going to still have a, a low blood pressure and the baroreceptor effect is to tell the brain, hey, brain, yeah. we've got a low pressure here. Can you deal deal with this? And then a fairly non-specific reaction is just to say, speed up heart. Okay. Yeah. So then we go to cardiogenic. So this is cardiac output as well, an issue. So it can be either heart rate. It can be either stroke volume. And we've spoken about all those different types of cardiogenic shock. So again, increased systemic vascular resistance. And so... For example, if you've got a bradycardic issue or a tachycardic issue resulting in hypovolemia, it's not going to trigger an increase in heart rate because your heart rate's already through the roof, Mm. right? So the main way it's going to try and respond to this or compensate is through systemic vascular resistance increase. And that's one of the big ones when it comes to cardiogenic shock. The the cold clammy is is a big sign for cardiogenic shock. Oh, yes, yes. Yep. Yeah. Uh, and then we look at the distributive. So neurogenic. So this is predominantly, so what we've just spoken about with hypervolemic, obstructive and cardiogenic are all pretty much cardiac output sides of the equation. But the systemic vascular resistance end of the, the equation is neurogenic and the two inflammatory, which is septic and anaphylactic. And it makes sense because in both, in all these three scenarios, the blood vessels are simply dilated systemic vascular resistance drops. And so again, the compensatory mechanism is jump over to the cardiac output end of the equation and try and increase heart rate, increase stroke volume. You okay with that? Yeah, and so by doing that bigger dilation, the one big difference with the distribution shock is that the peripheries might actually be warm because they're getting a more of a flow. Good point. So the compensation, like we spoke about earlier for the cardiac output end, you've got cold clammy but in this end and it's cold and clammy because the blood vessels particularly the peripheral blood vessels constrict shunt the blood away from the skin here the actual problem is that the blood vessels are dilated yep. at the skin at the peripheries at all the a lot of the tissues and so yeah being warm or flushed can be one or, or a particular or patchy, type of rash mottled that's right yeah and sometimes with um, neurogenic it could be quite dry because it's not only dilated but also the sweat glands aren't being activated yeah good point how's that now when are we gonna when are we gonna have a chat with Dinesh about the clinical stuff I just want to go quickly through the how how shock will progress let's do it just through the stages and then we'll bring Dinesh on so in terms of what happens to the body as it's moving through these stages of shock um, I found this really cool image 
So this is a diagram that kind of indicates what happens to the body in in the early stages of shock. So isn't it great that he's got an image for all of you? Oh, I'm going to talk. Well, it's actually a figure, but I'll. Are you going to describe you, it in yeah. vivid detail? Well, I'm just picking the book up. Is that so, Guyton? It's, I'm not sure we could do advertising. It's Guyton and Hall. Okay. Everyone knows Guyton and Hall medical physiology. Okay, it's one of the best medical physiology texts. All right. So this. What do you think about boron? Do you like the boron <laughs> text? Um, my, it's not, I don't my, wanna, not I don't my really favorite. Make, it's a harder harder one to get into. Harder one. Yeah, I don't understand anything in the boron textbook. Okay, so this diagram is looking at the body's effect in blood loss. So this is going to be more hypovolemic shock. So how is the body reacting? Most notably, cardiac output and MAP. Can you just quickly explain MAP? Uh, mean arterial pressure. And how is that different to blood pressure? Because it's the mean arterial <laughs> pressure. Um, so, so rather than the fluctuations of systolic, diastolic, it kind of the average, is that right? That's right. All right. Well, in a way, it's, it's not necessarily, yes. You, let's just say it's the average. Yeah. All right. But basically, it needs to be around about 90 millimeters. So we know that the top of our blood pressure is 120, right? Uh, and that's happening at the aorta. Yep. And then it drops all the way down to around about 50 or 30 at the capillaries. I always forget. I think at, I think at the kidneys, at the glomerulites, 50. And at the, uh, at the tissues... About 60, I think. 55. Yeah. And at the tissues of the body, it's around about 30. But yeah. that's how the blood yeah. pressure drops as it distributes. Just yeah. like a hose, it's highest at the nozzle, it's lowest at the very end. That's how blood... But mean arterial pressure is... The way I think about it, it's the number is 90 millimetres of mercury. And this is the number required to maintain adequate perfusion to the tissues. So if it drops too low below 90 over a significant period of time, perfusion is not going to be adequate doesn't mean death, it just means not going to be adequate. Yeah, okay, so I'll just mention the stages here. So there's a compensatory stage, which means you could go into shock, but your body has the ability between, with all its feedback mechanisms to bring you back to a state where you can recover. That's stage one, compensatory, okay. Yep. Okay, or sometimes non-progressive. Number two is uh, progressive, which basically means you're going into a stage where now you're in it you need an intervention, a clinical intervention, like an IV fluids or maybe some drugs to bring you back out. Whereas stage three, irreversible, um, this is, it's going to become Just fatal. like the word says, yeah, it's, it's irreversible? It's going to end in, end in a, a bad But do outcome. they all progress this way? You know, all shock? Because shock is acute or subacute. It's very quick. Yep. Right? So. Oh, yeah, but so if it's not rectified, you're, it's going to end up in death. So this is, a, this is an experiment. So back in the day, they did a lot of these shock experiments with animals. So I remember my professor that I did my PhD with, he said when he used to teach physiology um, back in the day, they would bring rabbits into the physiology class, have an arterial line into it and some other um, diagnostic equipment like monitors for heart rate, ECG, all that stuff, blood pressure. And then they'll just start pulling blood out of the rabbit and look at the physiological response. As in, are they conscious or unconscious? What happens to oh, the I think heart the rate? I think the animal was anesthetized, so it's gotcha. It's not alive. Oh, so oh, it's not awake. So just looking at the vitals. That's right. Okay. And so this so is breathing, the, heart rate, things yeah, like that. Okay. Exactly. Yep. Yep. So this is what I'm going to walk you through in terms of this diagram, which uh, you can't see. Well, do it see. in the microphone for me. Uh. Okay. So what's going to happen here is when we start to pull 
take blood out of the person by percentage, we're going to look at what the effect of cardiac output and MAP will be. Okay, so if you remove ten percent of your blood volume, so okay. let's just say for a five litered person, okay, <laughs> yeah, so for a five liter person, go on. Um, so this will be five hundred milliliters. All right. Okay, if you took that out, that amount of blood, and this is about the blood amount of blood that a person would donate, right? So if you were to donate blood, mils. it's about five hundred mils, maybe yeah. it's a touch under. Yep. There would be really little to no difference in cardiac output and MAP. It's pretty much holding at its one hundred percent value. So okay. what you're saying is that our blood volume, there's a buffering capacity of around about 500 mils. Where about 10%. We, about 10% of our entire blood volume where we maintain everything. We maintain mean arterial pressure. We maintain perfusion. Cardiac output, yep. Cardiac output. Right. Cardiac output will still be five litres a minute. Yeah, something like that. All right. Okay, so now if you move up to 20% of blood volume, so you pull out 20% of the person's blood volume. Microphone, okay. Matt. Okay. It's hard to, to look at both. Okay. Again, MAP holds it pretty much at 100%. So MAP is doing well. Out. Yep. So you but sp- but me- cardiac output starting to drop. Okay. So pressure's maintained, but the, the amount of blood coming out of the heart every minute has dropped. So we're still at around about 90 yep. millimeters of mercury, which is good perfusion pressure, but cardiac output's dropped. So my assumption would be... Maybe about uh, the cardiac output's maybe about... 75% of what it normally is. So you may not know this. Is So you took, you've pulled one litre of blood out of a five-litre person. Correct. And my assumption would be that the reason why uh, mean arterial pressure is maintained is because maybe the heart's beating more slowly yet more powerfully. Possibly. And, and the, the systemic vascular resistance will be much higher. Okay. Keep going. And then we take off 30%. So this is now a litre and a half. Okay, now arterial pressure is dropping. It's probably it's probably now to about seventy percent, whereas cardiac output's almost half now of what it should be. Say that again. So once you've taken thirty percent of blood volume out, the MAP yeah. is about seventy five percent of what it normally is, whereas the cardiac output's about half of what it normally would be. Oh wow! Okay. 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 And then you bring it to forty percent of blood of your total blood volume. Okay, and take that out. Now it's in a lot of problems. So now you're pretty much getting to 30% on both MAP and the cardiac output. So at what point MAP-wise are you having issues? Okay, so I think the big problems start to arise once your MAP is kind of below 30 millimetres of mercury. So when a person goes into, say, a complete um, arrest where you've got no kind of output, the, the primary driver of what's trying to rectify this is the vasomotor component in your medulla. So this is an area of brain nuclei that is trying to tell the sympathetic nervous system to clamp down your blood vessels. And so that would be why the mean arterial pressure is probably more efficient than the cardiac output. Yeah, Does so because sense? systemic vascular resistance is coming into play. So if, But that's only going to be around for a bit. So if you maintain that, real low amount of perfusion, then that part of the brain will die and then it's gone into an irreversible stage. So this is where the blood pressure equation really comes into action because dropping out cardiac output, you're still maintaining pressure because you've got the compensatory mechanisms of systemic vascular resistance. Yep. All right. So I'll just now I'll just go through quickly what's happening in the body at each one of those three stages. Okay. 
Okay. So firstly, in the compensatory stage, this is where your body can bring it back on its own. Okay. So regardless of the type of shock, essentially what's going to be happening is you've got low blood pressure. Okay. And that's picked up. How does the body know it's got low blood pressure? Baroreceptors, carotids. Yep. Yep. And aortic aortic arch. They're the big ones. So they've got special... Um, pressure Barrow receptors, receptors. <laughs> special, pe- and they're getting taken back via the vagus and glossopharyngeal nerve to a part of the brainstem, which then tells the other part of the brainstem to say, "Please go speed up the Kick heart." Kick it up a bit, yeah. H- hurry up, heart, both in force and speed. Okay, so that's baroreceptors. Another one is the the RAS system. So if your kidneys start to experience my favorite system, by the way, or you quickly in two minutes explain what happens here. Uh, So the RAS system is the renin-angiotensin-aldosterone system. And what basically happens is this is all happening at the kidneys. And we know that kidneys need to filter the blood. And if the kidneys become hypoperfused, for whatever reason it may be, uh, the kidneys need to try and maintain appropriate perfusion. So the kidneys respond because the blood vessel leading into the kidney that gets filtered, called the afferent arteriole, the pressure in that's going to be low. So it stimulates the kidney to release something called renin. And renin is going to activate something called angiotensinogen, which comes from the liver, which is floating around through the bloodstream, and turns into angiotensin. Angiotensin then turns into angiotensin 2 when it gets to the lungs because the lungs produce an enzyme called ACE, angiotensin-converting enzyme. And angiotensin... Which, as a side point, is where the COVID virus binds. Keep going. Yes, but COVID binds to ACE2, not ACE1. So ACE1, which is the one we're talking about here, increases blood pressure. ACE2 inhibits it and drops blood pressure down. Uh, So ACE turns angiotensin... One into angiotensin two, and angiotensin two does all the important blood pressure regulating things. So it um, constricts the efferent arteriole. Uh, it increases uh, things like. Um, uh, uh, I think just does vas- a lot of a lot of vasopressin, yeah. which is also known as aldosterone, increases. No. ADH. ADH. Sorry, antidiuretic hormone. So, but it will tell aldosterone to be released, which. Is- causes salt retention, yep. more water. So ultimately the, the side effects, well not down, the, the good downstream effects from the RAS system is um, greater systemic vascular resistance and greater blood volume, Correct. which will help with the blood pressure, hopefully in this shock, right? Yep. It'll also go to the brain and tell you to release ADH, which reabsorbs even more water and it will tell you to be thirsty. So this could be an early sign of a person in shock. They're thirsty, okay? Uh, anything else? Uh, it's also going to help you to absorb more water in your gastrointestinal tract. So all this stuff in the in the compensatory stage of shock is really trying to get you the pressure back, the volume back, and the the vascular to be uh, what's it? It's just trying to maintain homeostasis. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So this is the take home point for compensatory is it will it can be reversed on its own. Now we go into stage two, which is pr- progression. So this is where you need an intervention to essentially save you. Now, part of the reason why a person is now getting worse, one of the big one is the cardiac depression. So your heart is now starting to give up the fight. Now, part of the reason why that is, is because as you've got a drop in MAP, that means also the coronary vessels aren't being perfused. And what are they supplying? 
blood blood to the heart, heart muscle yeah that means the heart becomes weaker that means the heart's not efficient anymore that means the cardiac outputs drop in that means the maps drop in okay other things that can go wrong in this stage is the vasomotor the vasomotor drive from the brain i think we've broken matt everyone i think this is I'm the most he's ever spoken before and i think he's now yeah going into shock poor guy uh, other things that could be going wrong in this stage is because the tissue is getting such a poor blood supply, the blood is actually becoming sludgy and kind of clotty. And so this is also going to add to... Clotty, everyone. Write it in your exam. Clotty. And so this is actually what we see in some of the, the later stages in, in COVID, right? Where the person's... Their uh, clotting mechanisms increased and this is causing... But it's, I don't think it's due to this. I don't think it's due to uh, hypoperfusion. I think it's due to von Willebrand factor. Oh, really? Yeah, yeah. From from all the inflammatory mediators being released, I think so. Okay, it's for individuals who have a very specific uh, von Willebrand response in regards to the clotting cascade. Okay, yeah. And then finally, another one just to be mindful of is the permeability of all your blood vessels uh, becoming increased. Yeah. So all your blood vessels are now uh, leaky and. Michael just spilt his water too. So That's he- three times we've spilt water during this episode. Two for Matt, one for me. We're not even yet. Hypovolemia. So yeah, the the permeability of all your blood vessels because there's a whole lot of chemicals being released, like histamines and all those things, and therefore the, the vessels becoming so leaky, you leave, you're losing even more fluid, and this is part of the reason why you're now getting worse. And well, what's the intervention? That's what you're talking about here, intervention. Yeah, this is where Dinesh will come in. Okay, but fluids basically, right? Yeah, fluids and vasoactive medications. All right. And then finally, we go into the irreversible stage. So this is basically your body, your tissue has been out of oxygen for so long. So oxygen, as we know, is very important for producing ATP, which is an energy molecule. And so what's happening at the cells because they've been running out of oxygen or without oxygen for a longer period of time, they're metabolic state shifts and they probably go more anaerobically which means that they rely on other metabolites like creatine phosphate um i'm looking at you to try and get you to help here um you're talking buddy atp starts to deplete we move into adp but you also deplete that amp all right let me let me explain let me explain so um when you do Okay, so if you've got oxygen and enough oxygen to produce energy, that's aerobic respiration, and you use that oxygen and you use a byproduct of glucose or glucose metabolism called pyruvate to basically produce a whole bunch of ATP molecules, 32 to 36 ATP molecules in this process. If you need to produce energy but you don't have enough oxygen, then what happens is you can't do this aerobic respiration. You have to do anaerobic And what happens is the pyruvate backs up and turns into something called lactate. And at the same time, you produce hydrogen ions, but you also produce ATP. But it's a very inefficient method to produce that ATP. Now, the thing is this. We have very low stores of ATP within our body, uh, but we've got high stores of ADP for whatever particular reason. But, and the amount of ATP we have in regards to exercise, for example. So if you went to do uh, a sprint, you'd have probably five seconds worth of ATP in your muscle stores to use. But luckily, we've got something called creatine, which can bind to spare phosphates, right? 
And you and so when you run out of that ATP, it snaps off the phosphate to create the energy and turns into ADP. Those ADP stores can be replenished with phosphate by the creatine phosphate. And then you've got ATP again. So creatine and creatine supplementation simply gives you more energy. That's a very basic way of looking at it. Now, when we're looking at things like shock, we don't have any oxygen coming in. We don't have much nutrients coming in. We've got to utilize what is left and remaining, especially in significantly um, uh, progressed uh, uh, states of shock. And the ATP that's available and the creatine phosphate that's available become depleted. So ATP turns to ADP, adenosine diphosphate, and you've only got two. But then you can take two ADPs and produce another ATP and an ADP and an AMP. Which is monophosphate, just one phosphate now. And then over time, you've just got AMPs and now you've just got monophosphates and then over time, you're just going to be left with adenosines. And an adenosine is a purine. So you've got pyramidines and purines and they both undergo various types of metabolism. Now, adenosine... You know, you've got guanine and adenosine, right? Adenosine leaves the cell. But because it's part of, it's a purine, it's basically the core of a purine. It's what is a purine. It undergoes purine metabolism, which is basically turning into urea or uric acid. And what happens from there? Well, probably also because your kidneys aren't working, you have, you've lost the ability to clear this. Yes. And so your uric acid would start to build up and... Because it's an acid, what yeah. does that mean? And and the lactic acid, which I guess is debatable now, but you have a whole lot of acids. Plus microphone your, mat. Plus your CO two is um, increasing because your flow to take the CO two away is poor. So you've got all these acids building up. So you're you're developing metabolic acidosis, yeah. and so this is now putting you in a really terrible shape. And this is part of the reason why it's irre- irreversible. So even if you loaded the person up with volume so through iv fluid and so forth you might get back a you know a blood pressure or map or an output that seems good but because all the tissues are in failure now particularly the heart once you start to remove that intervention the heart's just given up and you've got no atp left yeah you've got none of that adenosine to be able to reconstitute with phosphate and it's going to be very difficult to give the body enough time to recon- reconstitute that eight those atp stores because you can't really just inject ATP into people. Yeah. Right? Yeah. All right, Matty. So that's it. That's we it. Can, we can now move on to the expert. Dinesh has been quiet in the corner. He hasn't actually spoken at all today. So I think it's time to bring him in. So Dinesh, um, we've got a couple of questions for you around the clinical aspects of shock. So firstly, um, in terms of clinical features, uh, I know there's many, many causes of shock, but in terms of a, uh, a, a syndrome, are there particular things that you see in your patients with shock that they present with? Yeah, so you might, um, there's, there's a very large continuum of how shock will present. You might get the unconscious patient who is mottled, cyanotic, who um, can't really give you a history and whose vital signs are looking terrible. To someone who's not feeling that well, um, vital signs are okay. They might be a little bit tachycardic, but they're probably on the verge of falling off a cliff. So the really important part where you can is to gather as much history as possible. 
Um, and I think in medicine, you know, history is really like the foundation to what you're going to do with the patient. So, um, you know, if, if your patient's able to talk, like you, you need to find out, have there been any trauma? So is there any, have you been in a car accident? Have you been in whatever else? And you're already going to know that because ambulance will bring this person in. Um, but sometimes they may come in just feeling like rubbish and you might need to pick out that they had a car accident six hours ago or whatever else. Um, because if it's a traumatic event, then you might have um, hemor a hemorrhagic event um, or things like tension pneumothoraces, which is going to be um, an obstructive type of shock. So that, that's going to be relevant. Um, in the absence of that, you can work through things like um, there might be someone who's got uh, vomiting or diarrhea. They might say, I've been vomiting blood or I've had dark stools or there's blood coming out of my rear end, um, in which case, again, you get a source of, um, you get an idea of where that might be coming from. Next thing, um, things like fever. You know, I've been, I've, uh, I've been shivering, I've been shaking, um, I've, it burns when I pee. I've had diarrhea, I've had a cough or a cold, um, I've had this terrible skin uh, rash, I've had a cut that um, you know happened a few weeks ago. I've been to some COVID country and got a cough. So all those things are important because then, you, you know, you, you might start thinking about septic shock. Yeah. Um, so all, all that kind of history is important. In the, in the event that you get someone with undifferentiated shock, um, your history is going to be much more limited, but gathering as much information as possible from where you can um, gives you a bit of an idea of where to go. So the clinical features are going to vary widely depending on the cause. Okay. <clears throat> but um, a person with shock is, you know, they're going to end up being quite terrible. But... Some of the things that you might find, like in parts of the history or in parts of the examination, might help you where to go. So, um, and again, there might be things like, oh, they got a fever, and um, if they got a fever, you might be thinking about septic shock. Then, um, so the, those kind of things are going to be relevant. The other things you'll think about also is their medical history itself. So, for example, if it's um, someone with a spinal cord injury. Um, they might have a predisposition to urinary tract infections and things. So their medical history is going to be quite useful as well. Um, so the, those are really the features. And then when you examine the patient, um, you can be guided by the history. Um, but if it's undifferentiated, you know, you, you, you give them a pretty good look over, you look at the vital signs. Um, so they could be anywhere from holding their vital signs perfectly normally with a bit of tachycardia um, because they're compensating for their shock in the early stages <laughs> to being completely hypotensive, tachycardic, hypoxic, all that kind of stuff. Um, and in your examination, you'd look, you know, you'd, you'd really just try to look for a source of what's going on. Okay. So are there certain things that are pretty common, like say low urine output, the skin color slash temperature like are those things yep. accurate or not as much yeah so you can look for things like um yeah model, modeled cold skin cyanotic skin 
Um, they look gray. They look terrible. Um, low urine output, yes, because um, the kidneys aren't being perfused as well. Um, fevers, tachycardias, hypotension. So all those things. Okay. All right. So then moving on to diagnostics. Um, do you have a number of investigations that you go to first? And uh, what are you trying to do here? Are you, are you trying to just diagnose shock is occurring or are you trying to also understand what may be causing it or possibly both yep. of it? Yeah, because you, you need to figure out the cause to really fix this person in the long term. But one of the things that's really quick and easy to do is a venous or arterial blood gas. So you can pull it off a patient. Um, there's, there's usually a machine in the ED or wherever you might be and you run it through. And the main thing that you look for there is your lactate. So if the lactate is high um, and you, you know, you're suspecting some sort of insult that's caused this person shock, that's really going to be quite um, useful. So the other things that you want to do you, you know, almost everyone gets their basic full blood count. So the full blood count is going to tell you um, what their hemoglobin levels are. So if it's terribly low, you might start to think, oh, there's some sort of hemorrhagic event happening. Um, you can also get a biochemistry panel. And the useful things there are, you know, you, you can check some of their end organ function, like the kidney function, um, and it might help you narrow down whether there's something else going on as well. So it gives you, you know, basically the function and other things as well. But also electrolytes, um, so you can start to correct them if need be. But a majority of your investigations are going to be guided by what you suspect. Um, so to give you an example, you know, someone, um, again, looking towards um, septic shock, some people that get it are, febrile neutropenia. So if someone's had chemotherapy and they come in with fever um, and you find that in your full blood count that they're neutropenic, um, you start actually treating that straight away with antibiotics even before you get the full blood count back. And um, with those patients, you really need to go on a fishing trip. So you get a urine, you get a chest x-ray, you get um, sometimes you swab there. If they've got like a um, permanent a long-term line in. Um, sometimes they can get infected, so we swap that. Um, and you just uh, go on a fishing trip to find out where their cause, where their source of infection is. If it's a trauma patient and they're significantly um, shocked, you can do a fast scan. So it's a bedside scan that can look for um, evidence of intra-abdominal hemorrhage. Um, but a lot of these patients go straight to the CT scanner to see what's going on inside their body. If it's someone that's had a history and risk factors for myocardial infarction that's going to end up in cardiogenic shock, then you um, think about, you know, your ECG is going to help, your cardiac biomarkers are going to help and um, with, with these things. So a lot of these investigations are going to help you identify what it is and it's gonna, you need to start treating that. There's no point in pumping fluids into someone who's got traumatic hemorrhagic shock because they're just leaking it into their belly. There's, um, yeah, and, and it's the same for, you know, if they're in cardiogenic shock, they might need urgent 
um, catheterization in a cardiac cath lab. Oh, yeah. Okay. Um, yeah. And, and would, if they're in septic shock, yeah, sorry. Oh, no, finish off with your septic shock and then I'll ask you a question. With septic shock, for example, like in, you know, in people that have immunosuppressed like febrile neutropenia, we start antibiotics almost immediately because that's going to fix the problem. Um, so the investigation should be guided by what you suspect um, and who comes in. Okay. And would there be any diagnostics that would also give you a good indication of how severe their shock is or like in terms of the stage they're in? Like would it be telling you that they're approaching, let's say, a decompensated state or maybe even coming towards it irreversible? Would you, could you get that indication from any kind of investigation? Um, I, I think the main thing that they're going to look for really is like a um, uh, biochemistry panel can give you an indication of the end organ function, so how their kidneys are doing and um, how, how all those things are doing. Um, the lactate is going to give you, um, you know, it's going to tell you that they're in anaerobic respiration. Yep. Um, but it's really the broad clinical picture. So that if they're, you know, uh, if they're not responsive, um, if their uh, GCS is really low, then you know that their brain's not really getting perfused. Okay. So you look at the broad picture. And if they're oliguric, like not making urine, you know that the kidneys are. So it's really looking at that broad picture. Yeah, okay. So when they, um, just as a side question, when when they you hear the terms, you know, a person's gone into like a multi-organ failure, that's just um, basically doing these things like um, kidney function tests, looking at the heart, GCS, liver function tests. And if all of these are indicating that these organs aren't doing well, is that just telling you that they're in a multi kind of organ state of dysfunction? Yeah, the, the organs are getting poorly perfused yeah. and they're quite in trouble. Yeah. Okay. All right. Um, last question I just wanted to go through. I know you've just come off a night shift, so you need to get you to bed. But uh, in terms of management, how what guides you here? Is it, again, the kind of severity of the of the shock they're in or is it looking for causes? How do you, how do you approach it? Yeah. Yeah, so, I mean, broadly for, for a lot of types of shock, fluid resuscitation is the main thing, particularly when you're looking at sept, septic shock or hemorrhagic shock um, or whatever else. So fluid resuscitation and some sometimes aggressively so. Um, there is some research happening that says that um, you should be a bit more cautious with fluid resuscitation and use vasopressors. So vasopressors change your um, vascular tone to yep. bring your blood pressure up as well. Yep. But really you're trying to normalize those vital signs um, by replacing volume and um, by using vasopressors if, if you're not really succeeding with um, just volume resuscitation alone. But um, some of the evidence around that might be changing where they're saying early vasopressors might be better. Okay. And... Um, what, what governs the type of fluid that you use? Um, so, again, it's, there's been some controversy around what kind of fluids that you use. You know, if someone's in hemorrhagic shock and their hemoglobin is terrible and they're bleeding, you're, you're going to need to give them some um, blood transfusions. Um, there, there's, 
there's a bit of evidence emerging that um, fluids like Hartman's might be better for shock broadly, um, septic shock at least. So um, it's been a bit of a controversial area um, on that. Um, but yeah, it, it, the a lot of the a lot of the current textbooks and literature just says crystalloids, um, which is like normal saline or Hartman's or whatever else is generally what they recommend. Um, but yeah, you might need to replace the actual blood as well. Right. So um, the other thing you generally need to start managing, particularly if they're quite shocked and they're not um, they're not responding and their their GCS is very low, is the airway. Okay. So airway management is the next thing, and you might be looking at um, intubating these people. Intubation is um, it. There are some agents that you use to intubate people that can cause um, hypotension. So they're careful not to use those agents. Okay. Uh, um, the other thing is, you know, one of the big users of oxygen is actually, you know, if they're tachyneic, so if they're breathing really fast, their respiratory muscles are using oxygen as well. And it's quite a big user of oxygen. Yeah. So getting control of that and slowing that down can actually reduce oxygen demand in the body. Um, but airway management is one volume resuscitation is the other. And then um, sorting out the cause. Yeah. Right. So with, with your, um, your vasopressors or inotropes, um, again, do you have uh, usually a, a one go-to first or does it, again, depend on what's kind of happening? Yeah, it depends on um, hospital guidelines and what um, what what the centre suggests, but um, things like um, adrenaline infusions are used yep. um, to do it. Yeah. So... I can understand, say, with um, distribution shock where you've got a lot of vasodilation and so forth and you therefore, giving them vasopressors um, makes sense to constrict it all up and then, say, for hypovolemic shock, getting fluid back in. But if you have a patient in yeah. cardiogenic shock where obviously perfusion is the issue both to the heart and also um, to the whole body, how do you, how do you manage yeah. this without making the heart work harder? That's actually a really good point. So, um, and that's the thing, like you need to think about um, what you're doing um, sometimes. Even, actually, it's also a good point with spinal cord injury because spinal cord injury um, in the acute stages causes, um, you know, type of neurogenic shock um, because there's increased vagal tone. And for that, like... Um, for a lot of this stuff, you can be pumping in a bunch of fluids, but until you start to get control of what's actually happening, it, it you may not be, you know, you may not start to win. Mm. All yeah. right. Uh, and if, I guess a final side question just to finish off. If you were going to give, you know, advice to students learning about shock, what kind of things would you tell them, encourage them with, hopefully get them to learn? Yeah, I think... Broadly, when you're thinking about um, medicine and whatever, just try to remember that, um, you know, one, one of the big, biggest things that I remember from when I was a medical student was um, 
I uh, was doing a ward round with a kidney specialist and we saw this patient who was actually septic and had heart failure as well. Wow. And he was, he asked me um, what I would do and I just said, oh, fluid resuscitation. He said, oh, well, you probably just killed this patient considering how bad his heart failure is. So, yeah. um, you know, he, he wasn't that sick with his sepsis at that point. But the lesson was um, that he, he actually just said, you know, you have a brain to think about what you're doing. So always think about what you're doing. Um, <laughs> so I guess the, my advice would be to, you know, that there are plenty of guidelines and there's plenty of, literature and whatever else but you actually one of of the biggest skills that you have to do is to think to really think about what you're doing and to um, consider all the different things that are going on with the patient think about their comorbidities and whatever else understand that there's you know always think back to your physiology as well because like you very rightly said like um, some some interventions may not work in some clinical situations so um, when you work back to the physiology and think about it, you, you actually question yourself and go, oh, is this actually going to work? So those basics are really important. Um, things like septic shock, you know, they, they have a really high mortality rate. So recognising it early, and there's been so much work done around the early recognition of sepsis and all these other things. So recognising it early and starting to manage it early and getting... Um, Getting the senior support you need early is very important as well. Um, but yeah, I think uh, just working your way from the basics and really critically thinking about stuff is probably the greatest piece of advice that I ever got. Great. Well, thanks for um, your time, and I, I know you've, as I said, I've, you've just come off a night shift, so I really appreciate you um, giving up your sleep for this, but I'm sure that everyone, all the listeners appreciate your clinical um, input. No. And so it, it's already a long I podcast, so I didn't want to keep you too long. <laughs> and I, I always love spending time with you guys, so yeah, we, uh, it's an honor. All right, everybody. Thank you so much for joining us. We had a lot of fun doing shock. It's a lot of stuff. Um I did a video on it on YouTube if you want to watch it. It doesn't go for this long. It goes for about <laughs> 10 minutes, but I think I did a pretty good job of going through the different types of shock. Plus, I have a spectacular mustache in that Yeah, it looks strange video. when you watch. Yeah, I know. It looks fake, doesn't it? Yeah, it, it looks does. like I'm wearing a fake mustache, but it wasn't. So, everyone, if you want to contact us, please do. You can send us an email, gubiosciences at gmail.com. I'm on Instagram putting up videos and chatting at Dr. Mike Todorovic, D-R-M-I-K-E-T-O-D-O-R-O-V-I-C. And we're both on Twitter. Just look for Matt Barton and Mike Todorovic and you'll find us on Twitter because I always forget our Twitter handle. Uh, I got rid of Facebook. Um, So we don't have a Facebook page, but Dr. Mike has a Facebook page. So come have a chat. All right, everybody, Matt. Thanks, mate. See you, Mike. See you, guys.